0: the reading comes from Genesis uh, chapter 15 verses 1 through 18 after this the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision do not be afraid Abram I am your shield your very great reward but Abram said sovereign Lord what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus and Abram said you have given me no children so a servant in my household will be my heir Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Andrew. This spring, we have begun a series looking in the book of Genesis, the first book of the uh, Bible, at the story of Abraham. Um, There's a few reasons for that. First, Genesis is the book of origins, the book of beginnings. It is where we discover, uh, in outline form, the kind of core elements that are going to be the story of the whole Bible. Over the last year in winter, we looked at the story of the New Testament, the story of Jesus Christ. To understand what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, to have a relationship with God and faith in God, the place to go is right here in Genesis, and the father of faith, Abraham. Three great religions, uh, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, look to Abraham, as the great father of faith. Right here he is called Abram, but he will become Abraham, the father of many, the blessed father. And this is where you go if you want to understand what it means to have faith in God. What it means to have a relationship with God based on faith. So far we've seen Abraham's call where God brings him out of everything that he knows, his land, his people, his culture, it takes him to a new land, the land of Canaan, where he's going to have to learn in faith to depend on God. Call is a call out of one's ordinary self and into a new self created by God. We've seen the blessings that God promised Abraham, that through his descendants, through his children and their descendants, God would begin the redemption of the world. He would bless the world and all the nations of the world through the descendants of Abraham. Last time we looked at this passage, we saw that right at the very get-go, Abraham stumbled. He betrayed his wife, Sarai, who, through whom the blessings would come. After all, is the descendants of Abraham and his wife, Sarai. He uh, denies... God's faithfulness by trying to save himself by betraying Sarai and giving her to Pharaoh. And he endangered the promise of the blessing because if Sarai and Pharaoh have a child, then it is not the child of blessing. But God was gracious. And so as we continue the story, remember this is a story. It is Abraham's call where the story of how Abram, an ordinary man filled with doubts becomes Abraham, the man of faith and blessing. And we are progressing with him on that journey. There's one final thought before we look at this. Some people tend to separate the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some people only read the New Testament. Uh, Some people think that uh, the Old Testament is for Judaism, is for uh, the Jewish people and not for Christians. But that's not how Jesus looked at it. After his resurrection, before he returns and is glorified to the Father, he meets his disciples and he says this to them. They don't understand what's just happened. And he says, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So as we read the Old Testament, we're reading it through that lens. We are looking for Jesus in every part of scripture, and as we go through this story of Abram, we are looking for Christ here. So let's have a look at it. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. After this, Abram got involved in the politics and the squabbles of the new land that he was in. Uh, There was a battle between the local warlords and Lot, a relative of Abram, is kidnapped. He and all his household, and they're dragged off in a captivity, and Abram intervenes, and he rescues Lot, and he forms an alliance with some of the local warlords. But now he's worried. He's become successful. He's wealthy. We saw that when he left Pharaoh and the land of Egypt, he was a wealthy man. He's become powerful. He's able to challenge the warlords in the country that he's in. He's made alliances with them. He's, really, he's respected, powerful, wealthy, successful materially. But he's still afraid. What is he afraid of? But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inter- inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. He's got two problems. He doesn't have a, a child to inherit everything that he possesses. We don't know who Eliezer was, maybe a distant relative. If uh, someone had no relatives at all back in that time, then uh, a servant could potentially inherit everything that they had. But also, the child is the child of promise, the child that God promised. This is the reason that Abram gave up everything that he had. It was the purpose to which he dedicated his life. It is the reason that he is in the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And without a child, without the promised child, then everything that Abraham has been called to, that he's trying to dedicate his life to, that he thinks his life is about, everything is incomplete, unfulfilled. His whole life, it looks like it's going to be worthless. And Abram said... You have given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. This is one of those um, verses that it's good to think about yourself. We live in this extraordinary um, situation as Christians. We have this amazing promise that we are heirs of Christ, citizens of heaven, the children of God. It's such an overwhelming promise, such a remarkable thing to think about yourself. It's so exalted, so transcendent, so wonderful and amazing. And yet, there is a huge gap between that and the reality of most of our lives. We still have to go to the grocery store. We still have to do the washing up. We, we still have to deal with problems at work and in our family and with our children and money. The gap between the promise the extraordinariness of the one that we have a relationship with and our ordinary life, that is really the challenge of faith. These exalted, beautiful promises, this amazing future, and yet the grind of daily life. But just notice, Abraham is not, I keep saying Abraham, Abram. Abram is very honest about it. He tells God exactly what's on his mind. And this would be a recommendation I have to you. When you start praying, when you start talking to God, when you start journaling, it's like talking to, I don't know, a president or a king or some famous person. You, you feel like you have to speak in flowery languages. You have to be positive. You have to be, everything is great. But honest prayer is like Abram's prayer. It is honest. It is about the problems of life, not just the great things or what things should be like. By the way, if you read David's Psalms, they're exactly like this. It's kind of shocking when you first read the Psalms. The things that David says to God, the way he challenges his God. He calls him on the promises. He calls him on his pain and his misery. He calls him on why he's not living the way he thinks he should. There is a gap between what we think we should be living as children of God and the reality. And the only way to bridge that gap is to bring it to God, is to bring it in prayer and share and be honest, brutally honest about what's really going on. And God answers. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. He's restating the promise. He's restating the blessing that he gave to Abraham, the promise that his descendants would be a blessing. Abram believed the Lord and and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. It's hard to overstate the importance of that verse. It really is the core of this story and it is the core of the idea of faith. The Apostle Paul He writes a letter to the Christians in Galatia, and he says this. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand, then, that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abram's faith in God's promises was his the basis of his righteousness, that is, his right standing before God. And our faith, like Abraham's faith, our faith in God and his promises, similarly is our connection with God, the basis of us being able to stand rightly before God. But why should faith be such a big deal? If you walk around Hoboken, you can see all kinds of people. And from the outside, they look pretty much the same. People dress the same, they have the same lifestyle, often the same rough education, similar work, similar habits. And yet, if this is true, if one has faith in their head and the other doesn't, one's going to spend eternity with God and the other is going to spend eternity without God. Why should an idea or a belief, something in our head, be so extraordinarily significant, so transformational? What is faith? Why does it make such a difference? Well, we see here faith is belief in God's promises. It is a relationship of trust between a person and God, between a creature that is a created being and the Creator. It is a belief in the Creator's promises to us as God's creatures. What was lost in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve doubted God's promises and started listening to the serpent. At that moment, they lost perfect trust, perfect faith in God and God's promises. And the idea... Or well, the promise that God was on their side, that God loved them, that God uh, sought their best, that if they trusted and believed in Him, they would flourish, they would have abundant life. And the result? They fall out of that relationship of faith and trust. They become orphans. They become lost and abandoned. They become ashamed and they go and hide. You know, recently I was in a CVS and we're all standing in line and suddenly there is just this horrendous racket. This The child in the line in a stroller just started shrieking like all the horror of hell. It was just an awful sound. We all, I mean, it was an absolute shock. And we're looking around like this child is on fire or being devoured by a wild animal. Well, what had happened is... Her mother had just run out to put a coin in the meter or do something with her car or grab her purse or something and had left a child in the stroller online. She just popped out and she was coming straight back. And this child suddenly realized that she was all alone. And it was an absolute terror. Pure, unadulterated terror to discover she was among strangers, that she'd been abandoned, that she was orphaned, or so she thought. That is the relationship of a child to a human parent. That terror, that horror, that fear, alienation, sense of aloneness and orphanness and being abandoned, that is what is at the core of every human heart when we lose our relationship of perfect trust and faith in God. So what is faith? Faith is living without fear, secure in God's promises, secure in God's hands. Having faith that in God's hands we have abundant life, we'll never be abandoned, we are part of a family, we have a future, we will be loved forever, and we'll never be let go. It is faith that God is faithful And therefore, faith is the proper relationship of creatures, that is, created beings who don't contain their own life, our life will run out one day, in the hands of the creator of all life, the source of all life, the fountain of life. When we live like that in faith, grounded in that lived reality, That is the way things are meant to be. And that's why it is righteousness. Righteousness just means right standing before God. The way things are meant to be. Faith in God equals righteousness. And through Abraham, God is restoring that right relationship with human beings. That's why he is the father of faith. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? How can I know? There's a a poignant story in the New Testament where this desperate man comes running up to Jesus and uh, his son is is suffering from fits and epilepsy and he's getting burnt and hurt and he runs up to Jesus and and he just wants somebody to help his son and he reaches out to Jesus. And Jesus says, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We need to believe in God. We need to have faith. We need to return to our creator. But it is hard. Everything within us, everything in the world, all the fears that threaten us and those that we love, threaten our family, threaten our future, they crowd in. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's Abram right here. How do I know that I will get possession of it? How will, do I know that your promises are true, that I can put my faith in them? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all the leaves to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Cut them in two. Abram knows exactly what's happening here. He knows what the animals are for. He knows what he must do with them. He seems to understand what this represents, this weird ritual that God commands him, the sacrifice of these animals. As the sun was settling, Abram fell into deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Dreadful darkness. The word here can be translated terror, dread, fear of the Lord. This is God's presence, the creator, infinite, omnipotent, omniscient coming into the presence of finite, fragile creatures like Abraham. Everywhere else God shows up, there is death, because unholy, sinful, finite human beings cannot stand in his presence. So we have a ritual sacrifice here. We have God's presence here. And then God makes the promise again. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. This promise is the promise that we see fulfilled in Exodus when Moses leads Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, to the promised land. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now this is some crazy stuff. What is happening? Remember, this is 4,000 plus years ago. This is the beginning of the Bronze Age. Maybe they just all primitive nuts back then. Maybe this stuff used to happen all the time. It's very hard to wrap your mind around this imagery. Smoking fire pot and blazing church appeared and passed between the pieces piece of chopped up animal. What is going on here? How can we relate to this? Well, imagine you've just moved to Hoboken or Jersey City. You have the dream of every city dweller. You want to rent an apartment or buy an apartment. And miraculously, this is a story, you find this two-bedroom apartment, rent-controlled or cheap. It's got a view of the Hudson. It's got big, bright, sunny windows. It's got two bathrooms. It's got a dining room. It's got walking closets, it's got a parking space, and it's on, it's $700 a month. And you say, sure. And the broker says, it's yours. And, by the way, no fees. I like the look of you. Now, (laughs) how are you going to respond to that? It's too good to be true, right? I want a contract. Yes, you say I'm nice. Yes, the sun is shining. I want a contract before I believe the promise. And until that's in your hand, and until you know that you can hold that person, the broker, responsible and accountable with a written contract, it's not really yours. What makes the difference is the contract. It proves that the promise is true and enforceable. Well, how do you enforce a contract four thousand years ago people most people couldn't read or write very little paper around no police no courts no lawyers no judges few judges but how do you record a promise how do you enforce a promise well remember who they are they're not a written culture they're an oral culture and what do oral cultures do They tell stories. And so, if you want to create a contract, a relationship, a promise, a treaty, if you want to cut a deal, you turn it into a story. And you make the promises part of the story, and you act out the story. And remember, this is God not assuming anything, not making our assumptions about a culture. This is God fitting in to the customs and the culture to which he's speaking to. So back in that day, to make a contract, you split the animals, and together you make a promise to each other, and then you walk through between the animals, and essentially what you're acting out is, if I break this contract, then may what has happened to these animals happen to me. And typically, you would do this in the presence of people. It would be a very memorable thing. probably eat the animals in a big feast afterwards. It was a way of turning what we would call a written contract into a literal event with figurative promises and a story of consequences. And so, that's exactly what God is doing here. Verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said... To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river. God is cutting a deal. We still have the same expression. God is making a contract, a covenant with Abram. And it's saying this as the terms of the contract. By the way, if you have ever had a problem with a broker or a landlord, Think how much easier things would go if you went through this ritual and they promised that they'd be chopped up like those animal parts. Make it very, very literal. So all this makes sense. God is using the customs of the time and place to establish a formal contract, what the Bible calls a covenant. We're going to talk in the future of the difference between a contract and a covenant. And it is a way that in a pre-written oral culture, you establish a deal, a treaty, a promise. There's an example, by the way, in Jeremiah of exactly this. God says, The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf, I will hand over to the enemies who seek their lives. Their dead bodies will become food for the beasts of the air and the beasts of the earth. Notice the similarity between that and the carrion birds that Abram has to drive off. But there's a problem with the story. When two people cut a deal... They make promises to each other and they both walk between the halves of the animals. Because they're both saying, if I don't keep this deal, may this happen to me. If a king or some powerful person made it with the other person, then the other person would walk through the animal, the parts of the animal. Because a king doesn't really need them. They're the ones that will suffer. But what happens in this deal? What happens when God cuts a deal with Abram. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now it's difficult to translate these words here smoking firepot, blazing torch. Literally furnace or fire or wrath or lightning. But these are the words that are used of God when he appears on Mount Sinai in smoke and lightning. These are the words that are used of the pillar of smoke and fire that leads Israel through the desert as God appears to them. So these are the words of God's presence. And it is God who passes between the animals, not Abram. What does that mean? It means that God is guaranteeing the deal. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And what is the promise? What is the deal? What is the covenant? God is saying, if I am not faithful to my promise, may I be torn apart just like these animals. And he's saying to Abraham, if you are not faithful, may I, God, be torn apart, just like these animals. God is guaranteeing both sides of the deal, both sides of the covenant. He's saying, I will pay the price of this relationship. I will be faithful to you, no matter what you do to me. I will keep my promise, and your promise, even if it kills me, God. God's faithfulness is now the guarantee for Abram's faithfulness. God will be faithful, keep his promise, fulfill everything that he has said will happen no matter what the human being Abram does and no matter what his descendants do and no matter what all the people who claim to have faith in God say or do. This is a covenant of grace because God promises both sides of the deal. So I promised you we were looking for Jesus, right? How does God fulfill his side of the deal? After all, the history of the Bible is human beings being faithful, faithless, breaking promises, drifting away from God. So what does God do? Through Christ, he becomes a human being the only faithful human being since Adam fell. And Christ takes his responsibility for the human side of the covenant, the relationship of faith. And it is Christ who is torn apart on the cross as he fulfills this covenant. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. But that faith is faith in God's faithfulness. And that righteousness is premised on Jesus' righteousness. God is the guarantor of our relationship because he takes both sides of the relationship. So what does that mean to you and me? This is the basis of our faith. If God is for us, who can be against us? Not even ourselves. You know, we're coming to this table this morning. A sign of the covenant, by the way. And what do we bring to this table? Our wretchedness. Our unfaithfulness. Our broken promises. Our darkness. All the ways that we have drifted away from God. But when we come putting our faith in Christ... We come to this table based on his righteousness, based on his beauty, based on his faithfulness, and so we come freely. The covenant of grace is the reason we come to the table. It is the reason we can be baptized. Not our goodness, but Christ's blood sacrificed for us that we take on and are washed and made clean. Every element of the Christian faith Is faith in God's faithfulness fulfilled through Christ? And by the way, this means no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, no matter how miserable you feel, how unworthy you feel, how many people you've betrayed, how you've not lived up to even your own expectations, at that moment, you are just as beloved and just as much part of God's family as you are when you feel your best. Because it is not faithfulness in you. It is not your faithfulness that is the issue. It is Christ's. By the way, I think this is the great resource of Christianity. It is why the Lord's Supper and baptism are called sacraments, sources of becoming, receiving God's grace. It does not matter what we do or don't do. It does not matter what we think or don't think. The only thing that matters is God's faithfulness on our behalf. And it starts right here with Abraham. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. That is you who is faithful, not us. It is you who are the guarantor of our relationship not us. Lord, we thank you that we can call ourselves sons and daughters of God because you are good, not us. Lord, help us when we are feeling down, when we're feeling depressed, when we are uh, filled with self-loathing or self-disgust to remember that in your eyes we're beautiful, that we're part of your family, that you have said yes to us. Help that to be the lived reality of our faith.